Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are or where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Um, who here has heard of or watched the TV series called The Traitors? Anyone heard of that? Or maybe perhaps you've played the game, sometimes called Mafia or Werewolf as a game. So a few hands going up. Now, the, the premise of this TV show, if you're not familiar, um, and the game is exactly the same. So there are a few people out of a group who are secretly chosen to be the traitors or the mafia or the werewolf, if you're playing the game. Um, and the others are the faithful. Now, the aim of the traitors is to kill off all of the faithful. Now, not literally, just to vote them off as part of the, uh, as the, the episodes go on. Um, before the faithful have chance to identify and oust all of the traitors. So it's essentially, it's a game full of lies, full of deceit, and full of false accusations. Um, but apparently the nation love it. The amount of people I've heard talk about the recent finale um, has been incredible. Um, so I haven't watched the TV show, um, but I have played the game. And I feel people fall into one of two camps. They either love the game or they very much dislike the game. And I certainly fall into the second of those two camps. Um, Partly because it gets very heated, lots of raised voices, lots of accusations being thrown about. Um, Mainly because I'm a terrible liar. Um, I don't like pretending to be someone I'm not. Um, Essentially, I'm just not very good at the game. But I was on a stag do once where we played this, and I got dealt the traitor card. Now, most people would relish this opportunity. They would be in their element. I, on the other hand, was dreading it. Give me the quiet, honest life of a faithful any day. Now, the first round of discussion started, and I just remained very quiet. Um, Now, note to anyone who hasn't played the game before, this is the worst tactic that you can have. So you can't be quiet, otherwise people think you're hiding something, of course. But you can't be too loud, either. Um, You can't make lots of accusations, otherwise people get suspicious. But you do need to have an opinion on who it might be. And whatever you do, don't fidget or make eye contact because it makes people nervous. You can see why I don't like the game. Anyway, soon soon someone caught on. They asked me, Luke, are you the traitor? Oh no, they are on to me. What made you draw that conclusion? Luke, you've been awfully quiet. Are you hiding something? Uh, I guess I just don't like confrontation. Luke, you're the traitor, aren't you? I was just there like, uh, no. Uh, so then the first round of voting comes round. Uh, we go around the room. Everyone takes it in turns to say who they think is the traitor. Everyone's like, Luke, I think it's you. Luke, I think it's you. Luke, you're the traitor. Luke, you're out. I was there just like in a pile of sweat, just thankful that the game is finally over. I think it's the quickest game that we have ever played. But during the game and also on the TV show, there's so many words and phrases that are used to try and convince other people to believe you. Honestly, I'm not the traitor. I swear down I'm not lying to you. I promise I'm telling the truth. Now, often these can be empty promises, deceitful words, or outright lies. And the next time you play the game, you are not as quick to take someone at their word. You're more cautious, you're more sceptical, particularly if they lied to you the last time you played. And the same is true in real life. There are so many lies told, so many promises broken, so many situations exaggerated, so many deceitful words spoken, too many scam phone calls, too many politicians making U-turns on their pledges, too many parents not showing up for their child's football game when they said they would. 
So much hurt caused, so many relationships damaged, so much broken trust. And you may be here this morning having been deeply hurt by a friend, a family member, a colleague, dare I even say a fellow Christian, because of the promises they have not upheld or the lies they have led you to believe. And when we tell lies, when we exaggerate or speak empty words or promises, people will soon lose their trust in us. And the value of the words we speak will lose their worth. Uh, And this results in people genuinely being more sceptical. Now, back in September last year, we went as a family to the Isle of Wight. Um, And I was amazed at how many things were free for children under the age of three. But as soon as they had their first birthday, you had to pay kind of full whack for them. Thankfully, Bethana, my eldest daughter, well, my eldest, my only daughter, um, was still two at this point. So I relished not having to pay for stuff that she got in for free. Now, we went on a boat ride one day. I think we got a picture. We went out to the Needles. Um, and the captain came around to take our money. And he asked the, uh, what our children's ages were. And I said, well, this little man is 10 months old. And she is under three. <laughs> and he looked at me and smiled. And he said, ah, yes. My youngest stayed under three for a very long time. <laughs> and with that, he winked at me and carried on to the next person. I was like, wait, I'm genuinely telling the truth. My daughter has not turned three yet, but he wasn't having any of it. Lies, dishonesty, and exaggeration breed scepticism, not just towards an individual, but just generally in society, and it leads to a lack of trust. So let me ask you this morning, are you known for being a person of your word? Do you speak truth or do you share lies? Do you speak plainly or do you over-exaggerate? Do you do what you say you will or do you speak empty words? Now, we're going to be continuing our Kingdom Come Sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, studying Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, thinking about what they may mean for us today and how we can apply them to our lives. So let's dive in this morning. Uh, We're reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37. Um, So feel free to read along in your Bibles, on your phones, or the verses will appear on the screen behind me. So from verse 33... Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So our, passages, our passage this morning starts like a lot of other sections in the Sermon on the Mount. We have a throwback to kind of some element of the law from the Old Testament and then a bold statement to set out how things were actually intended in the kingdom of God. Jesus is raising the bar on preconceived ideas and targeting the heart. Now it's important to remember Jesus is not teaching here on how to be saved. That is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. No, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us how to live, how to act when we are saved. It's not just about murder, but it's about the anger that's in your heart. It's not just about adultery, but it's about the lust in your heart. And today's passage is no different. It starts by looking at oaths, but as we'll see, it goes on to target the heart issue at play. So it says again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. So what is an oath or a vow, as some translations put it? Um, We don't often come across oaths these days. Um, 
But the Oxford Dictionary defines an oath as a solemn promise or sworn statement, often invoking a divine witness regarding one's future actions or behaviour. Now, in ancient times, people did not write, they didn't sign written contracts, um, as you and I might do today. Instead, a person's word, their solemn promise, was as binding as a signature. To make a vow even more binding, an offering was often given along with it. And an oath normally invoked God as the guarantor of the person's word. Basically, when your word was not enough, when it didn't carry enough weight, you would have to add some emphasis to provide some assurance so you'd make an oath. I like to think of it a little bit like a pinky promise. Like, do you remember when you were back in school and you pinky promised something? Um, but once you've pinky promised, don't you dare go back on your word. So what does the Old Testament have to say about oaths? Well, firstly, it actually encouraged people to take oaths. If we look at Deuteronomy 10 verse 20, it says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. Now, it may come as a surprise, but... We all have a tendency to lie, whether that be exaggerating, twisting the truth, telling an innocent white lie. Old people lie, young people lie. I was shocked to find out recently that a three-year-old can lie. <laughs> Lies occur in the workplace, in the home, even in the church. This is not how God originally designed things. But we read in Genesis how the father of lies, as Satan is sometimes referred to, he deceived Adam and Eve, sold them a lie. And they ate the forbidden fruit. And from this point, sin entered the world, and along with it, humans' tendency to lie. Therefore, in the Old Testament, God encouraged that people take oaths in his name to give greater weight to someone's word, and with it, greater responsibility to keep it. By invoking God's name, it brought about accountability between people and also between God, essentially asking for God's judgment if they were lying. So oaths were encouraged, but breaking them was definitely forbidden. Numbers 30, 1-2 says, Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Leviticus 19, 12 says, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So going back to our definition of an oath, making a, a sworn statement about one's future action, often invoking a divine witness. The divine witness here being God, hence why the law stressed the seriousness of breaking them. It was misusing God's name. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfil it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfil your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfil it. Essentially saying, don't take an oath if you don't really mean it or have no intention of keeping or fulfilling it. But jump forward to Jesus' time, and this is exactly what the religious leaders were doing. They were flippantly taking oaths, breaking them, and deceiving others by their use. Yes, they were well aware that if you brought God's name into the oath and swore by him, then yes, absolutely, that was definitely binding. But they also taught that if you brought in other things to swear by, something that was sacred but wasn't God himself, like Jerusalem, then they weren't binding, essentially creating a system with some wiggle room so that they could lie and break the promises they had made. In the Jewish code of law called the Mishnah, there were whole sections devoted to detailed consideration of when oaths were binding and when 
they were not. For example, if you swore by Jerusalem, then it was okay to break that promise. But if you swore towards Jerusalem, then no, you can't break that one. It just made no sense at all. And it meant that oaths no longer brought about truthfulness, but instead promoted deceit. So Jesus continues in our passage, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So Jesus here is taking aim at those people who had set up an order of importance of things to swear on, some things more important than others, where some things are binding and some things are not. And notice the link between heaven, earth, Jerusalem. They all belong to God. They're his creation. They're where he dwells. Jesus is saying, you think swearing by heaven is non-binding? That's God's throne. Or earth, that's his footstool. Or Jerusalem, that city belongs to God himself. Even the mention of swearing by your head, reminding us that we are created by God. It is him that determines the colour of our hair, not us. So actually all these things that people were swearing by, which they thought enabled them to break their promise as they didn't mention God's name directly. In fact, they all link back to God as ultimate creator and sovereign judge over all. And I wonder, do we ever fall into the same trap of ring fencing where we let God in and where we don't? Areas of our life where we live in obedience and others where we can just kind of be a bit more lax. Not lying or swearing in church as we see it as a holy place, but find we have much less honest speech when we're at the pub or out for a meal with friends or in the workplace. We need truthfulness to infiltrate every area of our lives, not just on a Sunday or when hanging out with Christian friends. It's important to add by saying, do not take oaths. Jesus isn't opposing or going against the law in the Old Testament. Rather, he is condemning the flippant use of oaths that people were in the habit of making, which they didn't intend to keep. He was declaring that these oaths, the vows people were making, should never have been needed if people practiced the uncomplicated truthfulness that God desires. He is making the bold affirmation of the way God intended things to be, simple truthfulness in speech. Let me tell you this morning, that desire from God has not changed. He still wants us to live out simple truthfulness in speech. This point is emphasised in the final verse of our passage this morning, verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Do we live out simple truthfulness in speech? If we develop reputations for consistent honesty, being people of our words, sticking by what we say, whether that be yes or no, then our words will carry weight. We will be trusted and we won't need to make promises. However, it is when our ordinary day-to-day speech is deceptive, containing lies, exaggerations, false promises, it is then that a kind of a separate category of speech needs to be created for those times that we really mean it. And this can be subtle. I'll give you a a personal example. So last week, I was heading out the door for work, and Rosalind mentioned that Bethana was keen to eat dinner together as as a family that night, and wondered if I'd be home in time, or if I'd eat later. I responded with, I promise I'll be back in time for dinner with the children tonight. I promise I'll be back. Now, when did my response move from, I'll be back in time with dinner with the children, to, I promise I'll be back in time? Sadly, the truth is that response changed after a number of occasions when I simply said, I'll be home for dinner tonight, 
But then that email or that work deadline came up, kept me in the office a bit later than planned. I missed the train I was meaning to get and didn't make it home in time. I haven't kept my word in the past, so now those words have lost some of the meaning. I've now come to say I promise when I really mean it, and you can count on me to be back. And these verses have challenged me deeply. This is important stuff. Our words matter. Our speech matters. Jesus wants us to be people of our word, simply saying yes or no to things and sticking to them. And I'm learning to be more careful with my words, to say a simple yes and making sure I am there. Now, I won't always get it right, but hopefully with time, my family will know a yes is a yes. I really mean it. Rather than needing, I promise, in front of it to persuade them. Are you a simple yes or no and stick to it kind of person? Or do you find yourself adding promises to your words or swearing by something to increase the weight of what you say? You can trust me in this, honest. I promise I'll follow through with what I said I would do. I swear I'm telling the truth. Or the one people used at school, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Jesus is saying don't swear by anything. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here before we look at some kind of practical principles from this passage um, to address a question some may be asking, as I know I was. Um, from this passage, is Jesus forbidding all oath-taking? What about oaths given in uh, courts, for example? Now, some have taken these verses to mean under no circumstances can you take an oath. For example, George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, was sentenced to prison for refusing to swear on the Bible. Now, in fact, because of his stand, people in this country and others no longer have to swear by the Bible in court. They can simply affirm to tell the truth. But I've looked into some different commentaries on this um, and don't believe Jesus was forbidding all oaths outright here. The Bible tells us that God himself made oaths. Hebrews 6, 13 to 14 says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. God couldn't call on any higher authority because he is the highest authority. So he swore an oath by himself. There are examples of Paul making oaths. He says in Romans 1 verse 9, God is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I'm praying for you. You can be sure of this because God is my witness. In fact, when Jesus was on trial and put to an oath by the high priest to say if he was the son of God, Jesus affirmed. Matthew 26, 63 to 64 says, The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. By saying do not swear an oath at all, Jesus is setting out the true will of God. He is affirming that oath should never have been needed if people lived out how God intended, with honest speech all the time. Sadly, in human life, the true will of God is not always followed. Oaths should not be needed, but perhaps sometimes serve a purpose in a world where the ethics of the kingdom of heaven are not always followed. Perhaps they are needed to cope with the actual untruthfulness of people and the broken society which we live in that brings distrust. Perhaps refusal to take an oath in certain circumstances in our fallen world may sadly convey the wrong impression. Anyway, I'll let you ponder that one further by yourselves, uh, maybe discuss in community group. Uh, but to finish, I just want to talk about some principles from our passage. How can we usher in God's kingdom with our speech? 
How can we live out Jesus' call in these verses to live how God intended, with simple truthfulness in speech? How can we become people of our words in a world full of deceit, lies, and scepticism? So I want to focus on two key principles this morning. The first is, let honesty win every time. And the second, let our words be full, not empty. So let honesty win every time. As I've said, truthfulness, honesty, integrity are so rare in today's world. We're surrounded by fake news stories, uh, people lying to gain the upper hand, social media posts only showing one side of the story, the integrity of senior figures coming into question, and popular TV shows centred around deceit. Jesus is calling us to live counterculturally, with integrity, with honesty constantly flowing from our lips. Ephesians 4 looks at instructions for Christian living, that we should put off our old self, our former desires and way of life, and put on our new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25 says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, stop telling lies. We are to speak truthfully to our neighbour, and that may be our actual neighbours on the street, but it extends past that. So to our church family, have a look around this room, we are to speak truthfully to everyone here, but not just everyone here, friends, family, work colleagues, people we meet in the street. Proverbs 12.22 says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. The Lord detests lying lips, full stop. Detest, it's a strong word. Again, as I said before, this is important to God. He detests lying lips, but delights people delights in people who are trustworthy. But it can be a battle, can't it, to let honesty always win? Or at least I find that it is. It's often tempting to exaggerate, to make yourself look better or make that story more compelling. Or we want to lie in order to protect ourselves from the consequence or twist the truth to paint a situation in a better light. Or maybe it's the temptation to lie, to get something for yourself, to get ahead of others, to seek some personal benefit. I say in all these circumstances, we need to let honesty win every time. For me, there's that split second in my consciousness where I have a decision to make. Do I take this easy road, tell a white lie, exaggerate to protect myself or look better in other people's eyes? Or do I choose to pursue honesty? For you, this may be honesty when completing your timesheet at work or filling in your tax return form at the end of the year. Um, refusing to use fake ID when all your friends are doing it, um, or integrity in not illegally downloading movies or streaming TV shows or sporting events, integrity in leaving that note to say you'd bump someone else's car, even though they would have never have known it was you. We often try and justify our actions. Everyone else is doing it, so why shouldn't I? The Lord detests lying lips, but delights in people who are trustworthy. Let honesty win. Let honesty win every time. Just this past week, I had a missed call from a client during the day that I didn't get a chance to return. So that evening, I messaged them back to apologise and found myself instinctively typing, sorry, I was caught up in meetings this afternoon. Wait, I did have a busy afternoon and I did have some meetings, but I wasn't in a meeting when they had tried to call me. I was trying to protect myself. I was trying to look better in their eyes. Let honesty win every time. 
I reworded that message before sending to simply apologise for missing the call and said I'd ring back as soon as I could on Friday. Even in the small stuff, let's maintain our integrity. Now, Rosen actually gets frustrated at me when I twist the truth around our ETA, our expected time of arrival when we're travelling to meet someone. So usually, as you've probably come to know, as a Roden household, we are running late, normally. So we put on sat-nav, and maybe sat-nav is saying that we're going to arrive by 10.38, just as an example. Rosalind's default is to say, to message our friends to say, we'll be with them at 10.40. Sensible, accurate even. Um, I, on the other hand, I'm worried about letting someone down, so I would reply to say, we'll be with them at 10.30. Google, Google always overestimates, we'll make up time on the way, the traffic lights will be in our favour, don't worry. Now it seems, it may seem harmless on the face of it, but saying I'll arrive at 10.30 may make our friends think better of us in the short term. But when I actually turn up at 10.38, as Google suggested, my integrity is questioned. Next time, those friends may not trust that I'll stick to my word. So I say, let honesty win every time. Psalm 15 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. God is seeking integrity of heart. And as we live this out, letting honesty be constantly on our lips, we will become known for being people of our word. So let our words be full, not empty. So what do I mean by this? Let us do what we say we're going to do, rather than just speaking empty promises. Now, I often find it helpful when reading a passage in the Bible to have a look at what the message paraphrase says. Sometimes the words are just put in such a way that it helps to explain the meaning of a text or I simply get that light bulb moment of, ah, oh, wow, I'd never thought of it in this way before. So let me read today's passage from the message paraphrase. It says, and don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk Pious meaning uh, devoutly religious, so using overly religious language. Saying, I'll pray for you and never doing it. Or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. So this one challenged me deeply. When you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you and never doing it. So sadly, at the start of this year, um, both Rosalind's nan and auntie uh, passed away within a couple of days of each other. So when we were at the funerals, um, I said to a lot of close family members that I'd be praying for them. I said this because I know we worship a God of comfort, of peace, of love. But if I'm completely honest... It was mainly because I struggled to know what to say to people when they're going through such pain and such loss. I had good intentions when I said I would pray for them, but after a couple of days, I had forgotten. Now, by God's grace, and I believe a prompting by his spirit, I was reminded of those words I had said when walking around the village where Rosalind's parents live one evening. Uh, My footsteps actually took me past the pub where we had the wake, prompting me to pray for her cousins. Uh, I walked past the church and the graveside, prompting me to praise God for the lives of Rosalind's nan and auntie and thanking God for the hope that we have 
in Jesus. And finally, I walked past Rosalind's grandparents' house, prompting me to pray for her granddad. Now, I don't share that story to make my sound... I don't share that story to make myself sound holy going on a a prayer walk, rather the opposite, to highlight that I often fail in this area and it's something I need to get better at. When we say we'll pray for someone, do we follow through with it? When we put the little praying hands emoji on someone's WhatsApp message, do we bring their requests before God? How about we pray first and then put the little emoji to say we have prayed for them? Let's be people of our word rather than speaking empty words. Or what about when we have said we'll be there for someone, we'll meet up for a coffee, we'll help on that serving rotor, we'll turn up for community group. Are the words we speak full? Do we intend to keep them? And do we actually keep them? Now when preparing this message, I actually really felt God place on my heart uh, the married couples of this church, um, particularly in relation to keeping our words. Wedding vows are ones we make in the presence of God, vows to have and to hold for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. Keeping our word is easier in the better, in the richer, in the health. But what about in the worse, in the poorer, in the sickness? Are we still a person of our word? Do we upkeep our vows? We never want or indeed expect these hard times to come to us in our marriage, but the reality is they may do. Will you still be a person of your words and love your spouse if that health diagnosis comes through? If the bank balance is in the red? Maybe your marriage is in a difficult season right now, and I want to pray for you this morning that you would hold on to your vows, to love and honour your spouse even when it's tough, that God would bless your marriage despite the circumstances give you strength to keep going. Maybe your marriage is in a good place right now. I'd encourage you to pray with your spouse. Remind yourselves of the vows you've made, no matter what the road ahead looks like. So how do we move towards a life of truthfulness? It's one thing saying, let honesty win every time. Don't let your words be empty. But the reality is that it's hard, particularly with the pressures of the culture we live in, um, our naturally sinful tendencies, and the internal battles that we face. But we are called to live radically different, set apart. But this this is not an exercise of just trying harder. John 14, 15 to 17 says, and this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I love the language Jesus uses here to describe the Holy Spirit. He is our advocate. He is our helper. He is our friend. Not sat at a distance, pointing the finger, reminding us us of all our failures. No, as Christians, the spirit of truth is living in us, dwelling with us, rooting for us, willing us all on in our pursuit of truthfulness. We need to pray for the Spirit to fill us again, to empower us to live a life of truth, to give us the strength and the courage to speak honest words in all circumstances.
Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media. And you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.